We return to our reading in Luke chapter 23, and I draw your attention to verse 46 in particular. Luke chapter 23 and verse 46. When Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. These are the very last words which our Lord Jesus spoke on the cross before he died. He'd just spoken words, it is finished. His suffering for our sin, securing our redemption, was now complete. And he was ready to lay down his life, his body, in death and to reach the lowest point of humiliation and to be laid in the sepulchre before the Father would raise him from the dead. And our Lord is expressing great faith and love in saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Outwardly, it looked a very dark, miserable, discouraging situation. It seemed hopeless. Defeat seemed apparent to the disciples and to the crowds. There was darkness, there was weakness, pain for the Lord Jesus, loneliness, rejection. And yet, in it all, he trusts the Father. Father, he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. And in Speaking these words, he is quoting from Psalm 31 and from verse 5. And that whole psalm throws a lot of light on the words which our Lord is speaking here. And it seems that Stephen, when he was being stoned to death in Acts chapter 7, also had these words of our Lord Jesus in mind. Remember how he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, and he saw the vision of the Lord Jesus in glory, and as he died, asked him to receive him. These are memorable, searching, and many ways glorious words, and all I can do this evening is just scratch the surface, as it were. But notice, first of all, the context of our Lord's words. We've got to stand back just a little to appreciate what our Lord is saying and doing. The previous 18 hours have been filled with action, with sorrow, with pain, loneliness for our, our Lord Jesus Christ. He'd held the, the Last Supper with the 12 disciples. Remember as he broke the bread there and distributed the wine? telling them, this is a picture of my body broken for you, the wine, the picture of my blood. Judas Iscariot walked out after our Lord announced that one would betray him. And following the meal, the Lord Jesus walked with the 11 disciples across Jerusalem to the private garden of Gethsemane, where our Lord often went for privacy and for prayer. As they went, they were singing a psalm and 
as our Lord entered the Garden of Gethsemane, we're told he began to be sorrowful. That's a word that Matthew uses very, very carefully. In Matthew 4, he tells us that our Lord Jesus began to preach. His public ministry started. In Matthew 16, he tells us that Jesus began to tell his disciples of the things he must suffer, that he must be crucified and then be raised from the dead. Now here in the garden, Matthew tells us he began to be exceedingly sorrowful. He's overwhelmed to the point of death. Mark comments that he began to be amazed, heavy. There was a sense of horror, anguish, the sense which in his human nature he was recoiling from this out of darkness. When Satan would be active, when the people would reject him, when even his own father would turn his back, as it were, and in a sense we cannot fathom, forsake him on the cross. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, he recoils. And yet he prays, Father, if it's possible, let this cup, the cup of God's wrath, his anger against our sin, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but, but not my will, but your will. And, and the original says, your will constantly be done. That's the desire of the Lord Jesus, to fulfill the Father's will. After praying this prayer, and his disciples asleep, he wakes them, and the temple police, the Roman soldiers, the religious leaders, and Judas come, and they arrest him. Peter tries to defend the Lord Jesus with a sword, and our Lord tells him not to, and heals the servants, and reminds Peter that if he wanted, he, he could call for 12 legions of angels. He has heaven at his command. He could change the situation immediately. But it was the Father's will and the Lord's purpose to die on the cross for our salvation. And so our Lord was arrested, taken to be tried, Little justice was done, lies and deceit. He was then scourged. A crown of thorns was placed on him. That long walk to Calvary, nailed to the, the cross. The ridicule would have continued. The thirst under the intense heat of the sun would have been immense. And so his suffering on the cross began and continued for several hours. The, one of the criminals crucified with him repented and believed. And the Lord tells him, today you'll be with me in paradise. And in the middle of those hours of darkness, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting Psalm 22, the cry of David sense of dereliction, forsakenness. There's no comfort for him from the Father, the Father whom he has known from eternity. 
And then he eventually cries out, it is finished. And now he says, Father, into your hands I commend, I commit my spirit. That's the context of our Lord's words. It's a context we're perhaps too familiar with. We pass over quickly. And perhaps we're moved by this, the physical aspects of it. But the spiritual significance was even much worse. But secondly, notice that the major significance of what our Lord is saying in these words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Significant for a number of reasons. I'll mention five very quickly. One is because of success. He's achieved what he came to do. He's already said it is finished. You can contrast our Lord Jesus here praying this prayer, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit with what he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, remove this cup from me. Or what he said on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But now that cup of God's wrath due to us because of our sin, our guilt, the punishment of our sin, laid on the shoulders of the Lord Jesus Christ, that cup is empty. In the infinite person of Jesus Christ, the holy God has placed our punishment upon him. And the hell for the Lord Jesus is there on the cross, taking our place, the just for the unjust, to, to bring us to God. And now the cup is empty. The storm in that sense is over. The darkness has come to an end. The burden of sin which he's carrying has been taken away. And that infinite punishment of sin has been dealt with once and for all by the Lord Jesus. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Success, achievement. A plan made in eternity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And the Father appointing his own Son to be the Saviour, the Mediator. And the Father giving to the Son, the elect, those who will be saved. And before the creation of the world, all this was planned. In God's time, the Lord Jesus came, the God-man. He lived a life of obedience and now dies on the cross for us. Success. It's finished. Years of active obedience as our representative. And now the last stage in dying, dealing with our sin, is over. It means that sinners can now be saved if they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The door of heaven has been opened. Matthew says that immediately our Lord said these words, there was an earthquake. The rocks were split open. The veil in the temple was, was ripped open, broken from top to bottom. 
And believing sinners, those who trust in the Lord Jesus, can go into the very presence of God through what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Success. No wonder Paul could say that he glories in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the words are significant because of the joy and the anticipation. You may recall the words in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Who for the joy set before him. You see, in the garden, as he was walking through Jerusalem to, to Calvary, as he was being ridiculed, as he was hanging on the cross, he was conscious of, of a joy set before him, going back to the Father, being enthroned in heaven, ruling over the universe, becoming head of the church, sending the Holy Spirit upon his people. And as he hangs there on the cross, this joy set before him enabled him to endure the cross, despise the shame. And now he's committing himself into the hands of his father. His body will be laid in the sepulchre. The third day, the father will raise him from the dead. His sacrifice accepted. Weeks later, he will ascend back to heaven triumphantly in session at the right hand of the Father, ruling over heaven and earth. And he begins his ministry as our high priest, as head of the church. He's going back to the Father. And there's joy here, there's anticipation. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But notice too, there is intimacy in what he's saying. Father, he begins his final prayer here. On the cross, he'd use the words of David from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was there on the cross, our substitute, bearing our sin, our punishment. But now he's paid the price. And he addresses his father as he'd always done. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Perhaps we need to pause and consider the significance of that because for many of us, perhaps the Trinity does not mean an awful lot. But God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three distinct but not independent persons. They are co-equal, they're, they're co-eternal. The Lord Jesus has been face to face with the Father from eternity. And love has been eternally passing between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Harmony there, unity, love. You can begin to imagine then the darkness which our Lord felt on the cross. My God, why have you forsaken me? 
through the ages, through eternity, we've had perfect love and unity, harmony. Now the curtain has been drawn. And it pleased the Lord to lay on him the iniquity of us all. And so the darkness and the desolation has now passed. And he prays, Father. There's infinite love passing between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One writer has described it as love cascading from the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to sinners. In another picture, he describes a waterfall of love, one of the biggest waterfalls you could ever find anywhere. And God, who is love, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, loving each other perfectly, they pour out this love upon the church. No wonder the Apostle John says, here is love, not that we loved God, he loved us. He sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sin. So there's intimacy here. He knows he can trust the Father. But there's also assurance here. What is our Lord Jesus doing? Well, he's committing himself into the hands and care of his Father. He's not going down into hell, as some people believe. His hell was on the cross. In those hours on the cross, the eternal, infinite punishment that we deserve as sinners was unleashed upon him. We can never, never imagine the extent of the pain, the suffering, what it meant to the Lord Jesus Christ to be forsaken of the Father. That was hell for him. And now he is committing himself into the hands and care of his Father. There's confidence here. He knows and trusts the Father that he's safe in his keeping. This is why, where Psalm 31 is so helpful. You may remember that well-known words in Psalm 31, I think it's verse 15. My times are in your hands. We have a hymn using those very words. My times are in your hands, my God, I wish them there. But our Lord is quoting from verse 5 of that psalm. And then, just three verses later in verse 8, this is what the psalmist says, You've not shut me up into the hand of the enemies. You've not imprisoned me in the hands of the evil one, of the devil, of those opposing me. But you've set my feet in a large room. And our Lord knew these words. He's been brought out of, of dark horrors of hell. He's been confined. He's been restricted. He felt in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if it's possible, 
let this cup pass from me, but it's not possible. It's been hell. It's been horrible. And now he is emerging from the lowest depths of hell, from the most awful separation, from eternal punishments of our sin upon him. And he's being released. And he's going to die the first death. And he delivers his life. He hands over his life to his father. The sovereign father. The one who's in charge. Omnipotent. Faithful. Some of you may have real worries. You may have perhaps a dark future ahead of you. Worried. Our Lord is a supreme example to us here. In the darkest times, he trusts his Father to deliver and to keep him. The Lord is assured. There's a calmness here. He's in the care of his Father. That's what believers feel often as they approach death. The late Gwyn Williams used to tell me of a gentle providence. God working out his purpose. Our time's in his hand. And he would say, well, he's in charge. He knows best. I'm going to glory. Same attitude of faith, Father. Into your hands I commit myself. One of our former members has gone to glory. I won't name them, but you can guess. When visiting her, you'll probably recognize the person immediately. She would say occasionally, You will hear soon that I've died. Don't believe a word of it. And she meant it. Don't believe a word of it. I'll be more alive in heaven than you are on earth. Assurance. Confidence in the Father. And much more supremely and perfectly, the Lord is trusting his Father. And the other significance we need to note here is the control and the authority he has in committing his, himself to the hands of his Father. He wasn't the victim of his circumstances. In Matthew's account, we're told that Jesus, having again cried with a loud voice, yielded up his spirit. He wasn't helpless. So when the Jews and the critics told him, well, you saved others, yourself you cannot save, come down from the cross, he could have done. But he refused to. John, in his account, tells us that when our Lord uttered these words, he bowed his head and delivered his spirit to the Father. Father. 
No one robbed him. It was a voluntary giving of himself in death for his people, for his church. He was in perfect control. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. In John 10, our Lord said, I have power to take my life and I have power to lay it down, I have power to take it up again. No one takes it from me. He is the Lord of life and of death. But he commits his spirit into the hands of his Father. Then his body is laid in the sepulchre, the very bottom, the lowest stage of humiliation. These are remarkable words. Speaking of success, of joy, anticipation, intimacy, assurance, control. And yet I have to note, end on the note of challenge. If you're a Christian this evening, this ought to mean something to us. Our Lord's words on the cross, our Lord's work in his life and death ought to mean much more to us than it does. Isaac Watts, uh, in that famous hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, and Watts knew what it was to survey that cross, to look at the cross, to try and measure it, to examine it, to look at it from different perspectives. It's not enough to say that Christ died for our sin. Of course he did. But there's much more to it. Who is he who is dying there? He's the, the Son of God. God the Son. The creator of the universe. One with the Father. The judge. And there he's dying in my place. But not only the person there. What's described him as the Prince of Glory. Look at what he's doing there. He's, he's there only because of his church. He's doing the will of the Father. The Father, Son, Holy Spirit love their people. And their love has flowed out in order to save us. And he's there in our place, condemned he stood. And we can survey the cross and see what he's done. So many Bible words describe what he's done. He's reconciled us. He's redeemed us. He's bought us. He's given us access, introduction to the Father. He's the way to the Father. He's taken our sin away. He's forgiven us. We're justified on the ground of what he did. 
If you're a Christian tonight, I encourage you to survey the cross. Look at it more closely. Read the Gospels carefully. And just notice how the New Testament describes what our Lord did there. But I understand that some of you are not yet Christians. Christian is someone who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. Knows the working of the Holy Spirit. You've turned from sin. You've repented. And you've come faceward towards God and towards the Lord Jesus Christ. I can, I, I can tell you as a, an unbeliever that there's a welcome for you. That the one who died on the cross is urging and pleading and inviting you to come and to believe. The death of the Lord Jesus is your only hope. To die without trusting in the Lord Jesus is disaster. The wages of sin is death, eternal death. The gift of God is eternal life. You can be saved. I've known, remember one or two situations in the Bangor church where I was pastoring when people would say that they were actually saved, converted in the preaching of the gospel. <clears throat> Remember one young man, a student, saying he walked into church unconverted and he walked out a new person. That can happen to an unbeliever. Under the gospel, God works by his spirit, confronting you with, with his word. And the Lord Jesus urges you and invites you to come turning from your sin, repenting, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Rest on him. He's done it all. And he will not turn you away. And today is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow. Not in a few weeks or a few years' time. I remember in my first pastorate, we had a, a big coffee bar complex, a, an old public house we bought. And lots of the young people in the valley came in. And there was a boy and a girl in their early 20s, a lovely couple. And they heard the gospel many, many times. And I used to say to them, why don't you become a Christian? They said, well... We will become a Christian before long. They were lovely people. And they listened intently when we shared the gospel in the coffee bar. But the boy was mad on motorbikes. And they had a fatal accident. Both of them were killed. We don't know how long we have to live. There's a step between us and death. And the Bible says, today is the day of salvation. Make your peace with God. Christ has died. The door of heaven is open. And he welcomes anyone, any age, to come and to trust in him.